Hello, Mafra friends. Uh, good to be back with you. Uh, continuing our series on the Book of Acts. I hope you've had a, uh, hope you've read Acts eight, uh, starting at verse twenty-six. And it would be also helpful if you had had a look at Isaiah 56, but we'll be looking at that during the course of the talk. Um, let's pray together and then let's consider God's word. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the, uh, the riches of your word, your word which is powerful and effective. Uh, it, it, um, your word which forms the very heart of what uh, your servant Luke wrote about in the book of Acts, the progress of the word. So we ask that your word would continue to progress uh, in Mafra and in our hearts. Uh, so we ask that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to make your word come to life today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke is uh, at pains to point out that he's uh, done a very careful job of writing his story of the progress of the gospel, the progress of the word, the progress of the good news about the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's uh, reputed to be one of the greatest of uh, ancient historians just in his care to detail, uh, his eye for detail and, and his, uh, the carefulness with which he's uh, gone about structuring his telling. And so it's good occasionally to have a glance back and see where we've come from. So the story so far in the book of Acts looks like this. He begins with his prologue where he introduces itself and he says that, um, that the book is about, his first book, the book of Luke, is all about that Jesus began to do and teach. And so that, that leads us to conclude that the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Now, we've spoken about this before, but it's important to fix this in mind. The book of Acts, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's, a, it's the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus, mediated by his spirit through the activities of, uh, of the, the Apostles. In chapter 1, verse 8, Luke includes what uh, is virtually the, uh, the essay plan, the mission statement of the book of Acts. And so the Lord Jesus promises as the apostles, uh, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so really that's, uh, that, that's the structure of the book of Acts right there. It begins in Jerusalem, it progresses through into Judea and Samaria and it finds itself to the ends of the earth. The gospel is good news for all people everywhere and we'll see even an instance of that today. So then we get the uh, remarkable events of the day of Pentecost where the gospel was preached and many believed. And as Peter was preaching to the huge crowd that gathered that day, he says in chapter 2 verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so another of the major themes of the book of Acts is that the message of Jesus is the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament is about. People like Joel looked ahead to a day that they possibly didn't fully understand, but they spoke about these things uh, and, and the people like Peter and the other preachers recorded in the book of Acts are quite certain that what the prophets looked ahead to see has come to pass now in the events of the life, death, uh, burial, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so we can say, as, as Peter did, that we're in the last days, we're in the last era of what God is going to do to restore uh, the world to a place fit for his inhabitation again. Uh, and so we're in the last days, says Peter. These are the days that were foreseen by the prophets. Well, we've seen progress in the uh, the ministry of the gospel, the, uh, the advance of the word. We've seen uh, that Luke has these summary statements all the way through the book. And one of them, chapter 2, verse 43, 
We read that because of the preaching of the gospel, uh, because of the number of people who are coming to, to put their faith in the Lord Jesus, chapter 2, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And so we've seen one of those signs. It was the lame man who was seated every day at the temple, a uh, 40-year-old man every day at the temple, Peter and John, uh, told him to get up and walk and he did and Peter explained that in chapter 3 it's Jesus name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed this man as they could see so Peter and John took no credit for it but the gospel advanced because people saw the incredible power that lay behind the preaching of, of the Lord Jesus but progress was also surrounded by persecution and so Peter and John were arrested and taken before the Jewish authorities the same people that had killed Jesus uh, and they were asked to give a reason for what it was that they were doing. And that persecution certainly comes to a head uh, in chapter 7 when uh, Stephen, one of the people chosen to be uh, the, the representatives of the Greek-speaking widows, he was a, a man powerful in speech and um, he did many wonders and signs and, and he gave the longest address in Acts in which he explained the whole story of what God was doing leading up to the Lord Jesus and that was enough to have him stoned to death. And Luke has the interesting detail that there was a young man called Saul standing by watching who gave approval. So we need to watch out for that man, Saul. He'll turn up later in the story. But in spite of that persecution, uh, chapter 2, verse 41 says, those who accepted the message were baptised, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Chapter 5, verse 14, nevertheless more and more Men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So there's progress amidst persecution, but the word wins. And the word goes on and many, many, many people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we get to chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, our reading for today. And I've, I've entitled the talk, The Spirit Sends the Good News to the End of the Earth. It's the Spirit that's doing the work here. But the good news, as we'll see, penetrates even to what was called the end of the earth. And so we've seen uh, Philip, one and also of, the, uh, of the, the people that was chosen in back, back in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen was one of them and, and Philip was another. And, and it just I said at the time when I preached on that that uh, the people who were appointed to wait on the tables were not B-team believers. Uh, they were both very gifted speakers. And Philip, later on in chapter 21, we read he's an evangelist uh, with very godly daughters. But here we find him under the instruction of the Holy Spirit moving out of Jerusalem for a divine appointment. This is the first of three conversion accounts that Luke uh, records in the gospel. We've had a miracle story, the lame man. We've had a discipline story, a wonder and a sign when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down for lying to the Holy Spirit. But Luke gives us three conversion accounts. So there's this one, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. There's the conversion of Saul, uh, the young man giving approval to Stephen's uh, murder. Uh, and then there's the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius. It just goes to show where Luke's priority is. Not on signs and wonders, not on the extraordinary things being done through the hands of the apostles, but in their preaching and the effect that it has. Three conversion stories. Here's the first. And what it shows us is that God is in complete control of his mission. So verses 26 to 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian. He's not told why he's going, he's just told to go and he goes. But while going, he meets an Ethiopian. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Right, so he's under instructions now. The spirit's telling him this is what you need to do. Now we need to get some geography uh, together here. So there's Jerusalem in a map of the, uh, the Middle East with the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the, the, the border of, of Africa in the, um, in the, down there and then, and then you've got Asia uh, and then over to Europe. So this is the, uh, the crossroads of the world. Well, there's Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast was the region called Gaza and that's where Philip was directed to go. So this is the gospel moving out of Jerusalem now. Now, Gaza is a name that often gets uh, into the news. The, uh, we hear often of the Gaza Strip. It's a troubled place, but... Um, it, it's a real geographical location, hard up against the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it, it's uh, the place where the Palestinians live, and it's very often the the, the site of conflict, uh, tra tragic conflict. But uh, but that's where Philip went to Gaza. Now on his way, he met an Ethiopian. Now Ethiopia is a country in our modern world, but it's not the same as the place that uh, was spoken of here in the Bible. Uh, an Ethiopian in those days was someone who came from the region that we would now call Sudan. Uh, on the upper reaches of the Nile River, uh, these were dark-skinned people, um, uh, but the, the modern region of Ethiopia is, is further to the east of Africa, the south, the south and the east, but uh, the Ethiopian unit came from that, that region that we would call Sudan. Sometimes it was called Kush. Uh, it was the Nubian kingdom. It was uh, in the, to, to the south of Egypt. Um, and so he, this man has come a long way to go to the temple in Jerusalem. If you see the, uh, the scale on the map I've got here, uh, he travelled several thousand kilometres. Uh, this is w before modern transport. He really was quite a dedicated person about getting to where he wanted to. And remember that uh, we're told that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, now the ends of the earth are literally coming to Jerusalem. So this man's come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and he's returning home with a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, we're told that he's an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, which means that uh, he was an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, uh, which means queen of the Ethiopians, we're told. That was quite often the case that, that people were, you know, males were neutered so that they could be trusted around the harem of important people. But this person was a dignitary in the royal palace of the Ethiopians at that time. We're told that he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. He was a God-fearer or a proselyte, someone who was not Jewish by birth, but who had a real interest in Judaism. It seemed that uh, the temple in Jerusalem was a magnet that drew people. Uh, every nation around about had its own gods and goddesses, but there was something quite extraordinary about the Jewish people in that they worshipped one God who couldn't be seen. So people would be drawn to the temple and they'd see that there was no representation of the God and for at least some that that was a very powerful attraction the idea of um, of there being one transcendent God and so people were drawn to Judaism through it uh, and and those who adopted Jewish ways of life were known as proselytes or God-fearers uh, but we read in Deut Deuteronomy 23 that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord and so this God-fearer, this proselyte, this person attracted to Judaism could get to the temple but couldn't get right in. He could get to Jerusalem but go no further. 
there was a frustration by virtue of his being a eunuch that meant that he couldn't make his way fully into the life of God's people as it was practised in Jerusalem. Well, anyway, he's on his way home. Mission accomplished. He's on his way back to the palace, back to his task. Um, And we read in verse 28 that on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And so this shows that he's a devout inquirer. He spent money. It wouldn't have been a cheap undertaking to buy a copy of the uh, Isaiah. It would have been in scroll form, but he was reading it on the way home. Uh, and the encounter that he has with Philip, there are four big questions that come up. And so verse 30, we read that Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. Um, Now, we know that in those days, people mainly read out loud. They didn't read to themselves such as we very often do. And so that's why Philip was able to hear what he was reading. And so Philip asks the question, do you understand what you're reading? It's a good question. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip looks for the opportunity to say something and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the answer to that uh, is the second question. So the Ethiopian unit replies and says, "How, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So the indications are that this Ethiopian man is devout. He's a devoted man. He's travelled all that way. He's seeking the God of Israel. Uh, He's reading testimony to the activity of the God of Israel. He's persisting. He's read a long way into the book, as we'll discover in a moment, and he's open to being instructed. He's a real devout man. He's a good model for us. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 to 14, God promises people after the exile you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you this man's the living proof of that he's seeking with his whole heart and God reveals himself to him and sends Philip to do that so the the Ethiopian invites Philip to come up and sit with him inside the chariot the passage of scripture we're told in verse 32 that uh, the man was reading was from Isaiah he was led like a sheep to the slaughter And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So he's reading it, but he doesn't get it. Now, this comes from Isaiah 53. Uh, This is the fourth of what, it's a part of the fourth of what we call the servant songs of Isaiah. We're going to go back to preaching through Isaiah next year. So starting at chapter 42, then in chapter 49, chapter 50, and then in 52 to 53, uh, we see four songs that, that speak about the activity of one known as the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. Uh, the servant is sometimes spoken of in terms that make it sound like he's Israel, but other times it sounds like an individual who will act on Israel's behalf. Well, here the, the Ethiopian eunuch's reading about this servant of Yahweh, led like a sheep to, sheep to the slaughter silent in being led just like a lamb didn't open his mouth he was deprived of justice and he's without descendants for his life was taken from the earth so he's humbly submitting himself to an unjust death he's deprived of descendants that was a terrible tragedy for a person in those days but it's the ethiopian eunuch's lot as well he'll never have children Uh, to die without leaving a legacy behind was considered a shameful thing back in those days So the question number three, the the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet speaking about, about himself or someone else? It's a good question. 
So Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So there's a key to interpreting the Old Testament. Philip looks at the evidence and says, oh, that's Jesus. And he takes the opportunity then to tell the Ethiopian more than he knows already. Now, he didn't have a New Testament to do that from. It's not like he got out his pocket Gideon's Bible and was able to flick through and show him a few ripping verses. Philip would have committed the whole story to memory. Uh, He knew the outline, just like Stephen had done in Acts 7. Um, So Philip is able to put all the pieces of the puzzle into place. Um, We need to understand that the Old Testament is essential to understanding who Jesus is. The Old Testament is like the foundation of a house, but the New Testament is like the house itself, the fulfilment. Now, you can't have a house without a foundation. A house without a foundation will fall over. But no one lives in foundations. You need the fulfilment to make the foundation make sense. The Old Testament is the foundation. The New Testament story, the gospel of the Lord Jesus and all that he accomplished, that's the fulfilment. Uh, We each needs the other. We won't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. But the New Testament, the Old Testament makes no sense. It's a book without an ending. Without the New Testament, the servant of Yahweh needed to be explained, and it's Jesus who explains it. And so we can say quite confidently that Jesus is the key to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. Why do we read the Old Testament? They're Hebrew scriptures. They were the, the, the treasured possessions of Jewish people. We're not Jews. Why do we read the Old Testament? Because we've become Israel through Jesus. And Israel's sacred scriptures have become ours because he's the saviour of the whole world. These are the scriptures that spoke about Jesus. You can read about that in Luke 24, where he speaks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then the disciples gathered in the upper room after his resurrection. And he tells them, really, the Old Testament is all about me, what we call the Old Testament. And so he's the key to understanding and and, and working out the meaning. We need the Old Testament to understand what Jesus did. But the Old Testament makes no sense without the fulfilment that Jesus provides. And so Philip deals with the, the, the immediate question and we're told by Luke the, the passage that he was reading. But Philip would have gone on and, and explained much more than just those couple of verses. Uh, no doubt Philip took him to other places in the servant songs and showed him uh, the kinds of things that the servant did. And so Isaiah 53 Uh, further into this same fourth servant song of the book of Isaiah, uh, shows us that it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. So this servant was going to suffer at the hands of, of men, but God was the divine orchestrator of it, crush him and cause him to suffer. Um, his life was going to be made an offering for sin. In other words, a sacrifice that would pay a price for sin. Uh, but even though his life was going to be a sacrifice for sin and sacrifice inevitably involves dying, he will see his offspring. So implicit within that is a suggestion that this servant will die and come to life again. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. So his activity of pouring himself out as an offering for sin, his his activity of dying is going to lead to many being declared not guilty because he will bear their iniquities. He is going to bear in his body the sins of many. And so the the eunuch says, well, tell me, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? The fact is that no one else in history, apart from Jesus of Nazareth, 
are these words possible to be applied to? Who else but, but Jesus died for the sins of others, was raised and lives forever to see the results of his ministry, his servant ministry. Only Jesus fits this bill. And so question number four, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And the answer is nothing. Um, now Luke summarises here. Uh, Luke doesn't always include everything that would have been said. It's, it's pretty obvious that he expects us to be reading this sequentially and he assumes that we've been reading already that baptism wasn't done on a whim, it was done when people had repented. So in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the, the people say, well, what should we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Right. So baptism follows repentance. It follows putting your faith in the Lord Jesus. If Luke doesn't record that detail in the encounter of Philip and the Ethiopian, it's not because it didn't happen. It's just that he's already said that and he's, he's economising for space, assuming that we'll understand that that's implied in all that he's said. And so what can stand in his way of being baptised? Nothing. Philip has told him about the Lord Jesus, how he's the fulfilment of all that Isaiah was looking ahead to, about how in him he can have life, uh, eternal life as his sins are forgiven. Um, and the man's obviously made agreement to that and says, well, let's get baptised then. And so in verse 38, he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. And so this man from the ends of the earth has been welcomed into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, uh, some people believe that the, the location of the baptism is still there and at a very early stage of Christian history there was a fountain built there. It's called the Fountain of Philip between Bethlehem and Hebron. So if ever you travel there, um, if ever we're allowed to travel again, then, then uh, you might be able to see it. But verses 38 to 40 show us that God's mission is continuing. And so when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So the Ethiopian returned. He went home. Um, Philip didn't continue with him. Philip, we read, was, was uh, uh, suddenly taken away. Now, quite what that means, you're not sure whether it was a supernatural disappearance or whether he just took off again it's hard to say we don't we shouldn't read too much into it but the fact is they parted company and the Ethiopian we know went back home and we believe that he took the gospel with him to the ends of the earth so Irenaeus an early Christian writer early in the second century he recorded uh, what the Bible doesn't say he says that this man was also sent into the regions of Ethiopia to preach what he had himself believed and so there's, a, there's a, a reliable historical record from the very earliest days of the Christian movement that the gospel was taken to Ethiopia and after this apparently chance encounter uh, between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so this is another sign that Luke gives us that prophecy is coming to pass, prophecies being fulfilled. These are the days of which the prophets had spoken. So in Isaiah 56, just a couple of chapters after the, the section that the, uh, the, the eunuch was reading, we find that the fulfilment of the servant's work, in chapter 4, 54, we read that, that there's going to be a new covenant. Uh, in chapter 55, we read that the, the progress of the word will be unstoppable. Uh, it won't return to, to God void. It will accomplish all that he's purposed. But in chapter 56, we read this remarkable uh, 
prophecy, where in verses 3 to 4, a promise is made to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So this Ethiopian eunuch, is, this is, these words have come literally true in his life. He'll never have sons and daughters, but he's given something better. He's given entry into the eternal family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled before our eyes right there. And so we were told in Isaiah 53 that the servant would have spiritual offspring. Jesus, we believe, is the servant. And this is an example of his spiritual offspring. But we're told here that the Ethiopian would as well. He'd have offspring. And that's what happens when you preach the gospel, when you tell others that they become your children in the faith. But as well as that, he'll be blessed with brothers and sisters, with this eternal family of which he's become a member. And so we can say that what Judaism had denied him, because no one who was impaired um, in bodily form, as he had been, was welcomed into the assembly of the people in a full way. He was still attracted to Judaism, but he couldn't make it all the way in. But what Judaism had denied him, following Jesus Christ has fulfilled for him. So the old way of the law, of law keeping, as impressive as that was and as attractive that was, there was built into it a, a frustration. And, and we'll never find fulfilment ourselves in trying over and over and again to, to please God in our own efforts. What pleases God is faith in the Lord Jesus, his son whom he sent. And this man has found uh, the fulfilment of all of his deepest desires by trusting himself to the Lord Jesus who poured out his blood for his iniquities, just as we will. But there's a payoff within that because coming by faith to the Lord Jesus unites us in faith with that whole family of other people that have come in the same way. And whatever we think we've missed out on here on earth, if there is some joy that seems to have been denied you here on earth, if there's some, uh, some deep-seated uh, desire that seems to be frustrated, it won't always be. And for this Ethiopian eunuch, what was denied him in, in, in religion was made up for through his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can say this is a symbol that the, the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for people in Jerusalem. It's not even just for people in Samaria nearby. It's for, for everyone and everywhere. So where does this leave us? Well, there's some challenges, I think. Are we ready to go with the gospel? Just like Philip was. Philip went at the urging of God by his Holy Spirit because God uses people. God could just speak into everyone's hearts without any human intervention, but that's not how he does it. He uses people to take his message. So are you ready to go with the gospel, even if it's just in town, but what if it's elsewhere? Are you ready to go with the gospel? Are you ready? Are you equipped to answer the questions of inquirers? Because the Ethiopian was reading something he didn't get and he wanted to know what's going on here. Is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? Philip knew enough to be able to answer the questions. Are we ready to take the opportunities of chance encounters? I was speaking to a lady the other day who says she starts every day by praying that God will send someone to her today. Uh, and that's her prayer. It should be ours. 
Uh, are you ready to take the opportunities of chance encounters? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. But here's another challenge. Do you understand what you're reading? Uh, if you don't, there's some wonderful resources uh, which I can recommend. And uh, if enough of you want me to, I'll put together a bulk order and get them in. But uh, the New Bible Commentary, the New Bible Dictionary, the New Bible Commentary offers simple commentary on every book of the Bible, introductions to help you understand. The New Bible Dictionary, well, if you don't know where Gaza is, look up G for Gaza. If you don't know where Ethiopia is, look up E for Ethiopia. It takes you through, just like a dictionary does, all the different things in the Bible. How to read the Bible for all it's worth and the companion how to read the Bible book by book are introductions to help you understand the kind of literature that the Bible is and then the specific tips on how to read well. But if you want to get a, a, a picture of how the whole Bible story fits together, like Stephen was able to give in Act 7 and like Philip's clearly been able to do in Acts 8, then this wonderful book by Vaughan Roberts, God's Big Picture is a Ripper, and I recommend, actually I recommend them all. I own them all and I've used them all and I continue to use them. Uh, they're great resources so that you'll understand what you're reading and so that you'll be able to help other people understand the whole story of the Bible that uh, finds its foundation in the Old Testament but its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, loving Father, we thank you uh, for your word again. We thank you for your servant Philip and for this incredible encounter that's been recorded for us. Uh, we thank you that he was willing and able to be used by you and that he'd um, dedicated himself to that kind of study that enabled him to understand the scriptures, to be able to explain it well to others. So we pray that you would help us to take these things to heart, and we ask that you would uh, fire us with your Holy Spirit to be on the lookout for opportunities to, to speak about the Lord Jesus and to be equipped well with an understanding of the scriptures so that we can uh, take your word to people and so that it would make sense. Please direct us today to people that need to hear your word and uh, so we pray that you would help us in all these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.